Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Rights holders and venues across the world of sports are on a constant quest to enhance the spectator experience at events and for those watching remotely by adding entertainment elements such as concerts, fan zones and enabling more access to star athletes. Taylor Swift's pre-race concert at the 2016 US Grand Prix, the theatre-style lighting deployed at the ATP World Tour Finals in London and, of course, the Super Bowl halftime show are all examples. There are also many examples of new entertainment events built around a sports element, including Andy Murray Live, an evening of music and exhibition tennis, and the Kellogg's Tour of Gymnastic Champions, a 36-city tour of US Olympic gymnasts designed to capitalise on the team's success at Rio 2016. And the NFL and Cirque du Soleil, meanwhile, have partnered to create a major showcase installation in Times Square due to open next month. All of that is the trend of the greater fusion of sports and entertainment, which is trend number four in Nielsen Sports Commercial Trends in Sport 2017. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 46 of Inside Sponsorship. And joining me on this episode to talk about that trend is Rebecca Stevens, Vice President, Global Brand and Sponsorship Consulting at Nielsen Sports. Now, before we hear from Rebecca, it's always awesome to hear from you guys, the listeners. It really is cool when we get an email or a LinkedIn with a message and hear about where you work, what you're up to, and how much you like the show. Of course, that then means that you get a shout-out. And the first shout-out goes to Mark Rogers, who works at MR Consulting out of Dallas, Texas, and he wrote... Hi Daniel, recently I found your podcast and website, they are a great insight from you and your team, plus the guests you have are spot on. I work mainly in outdoor sports and marketing and sales, which includes sponsorship. More people need to listen to your podcast and read your blog posts. Keep up the good work. Very kind. Thank you, Mark. And For those of you that know me, uh, know that I'm a keen mountain biker and Mark and I were chatting on LinkedIn and Mark also has a history in mountain biking having once owned a team and he knows my local trails and his team also had a local rider from Sponsor HQ's hometown, Canberra, Australia. Very cool, a very small world. And the second shout out goes to Patrick Collins. Patrick is head of sponsorship sales for six day cycling at Madison Sports Group in London. And that event won BT Sports Industry Award 2017 for Entertainment Experience of the Year. Patrick connected with me on LinkedIn to let me know he is a new listener of the show. Thanks for tuning in, Patrick, and great job on the award for you and the team. Well done. Now that was quite a serendipitous shout out because the six day cycling event is exactly what this show is focusing on and that's the greater fusion of sport and entertainment. And to find out more, taking a look at the website, it says the lights get turned down and the music turned up as six day combines the very best in track cycling with an incredible party atmosphere. Expect the action to come thick and fast as our track centre DJ keeps the party going before, during and after the racing. It does look very cool, and I'll post a link and a video to it in the show notes at sponsor.net so you can go and check it out for yourself. Whenever we welcome a Nielsen staff member on the show to discuss one of their commercial trends, Mark Thompson, Sponsor's managing director, also blogs about the topic, but through specifically the lens of what that trend means for the sponsorship industry. And this time around, Mark outlines how the greater fusion of sports and entertainment is actually a new horizon for sponsorship and how 
whether you're a brand or a rights holder, you can capitalise on it. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, you like music? I do like music. What, what's your favourite song? If you had to listen to a song forever on repeat, what would it be? For, forever. Forever. Wow. Um, mate, I'm, I've, I'm really eclectic, right? I've, I've got a massive mix. I'm going to say Africa by Tata. Oh, it's a good song, that. Yeah. My kids love that song. They yeah. know pretty much all the words. <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we won't get you to sing it. No. Clearly, you're a sports lover. What about when those two things come together, music and sport? Well, I mean, there's not too much more in the world that gives me more pleasure than that that I can actually talk about on the podcast. So, um, it is. It's that's the holy grail for me. And we're here to talk about the fusion of sports and entertainment, which is trend number four in uh, Nielsen Sports' report on commercial trends in sport for 2017, aren't we? Yes, we are. What are some of the statistics around sports and entertainment? coming together fusing yeah um so far through this series we've we've talked about lots of interesting things this this for me was i had the most fun writing this blog because the the statistics that came out of it the way it sort of combines a lot of things we've spoken about it it's all starting to make sense to me and you weren't (laughs) distracted by your mate hosing the dirt outside the window no i did this late (laughs) at night so (laughs) i couldn't see so what piqued your interest about it what caught your eye um a couple of big stats. So 25% of the US population have attended a music event at or connected to a sporting event. Have you ever? Yeah. What? Um, I, I was struggling to think of one that I might have attended. No, well, you've been to the AFL Grand Final. Does that count? Yeah. Okay. Because that post the, post the Grand Final, they have the concert in the field. Yeah, yeah. I went on for a little kick to kick in the corner before yeah. we got uh, mobbed by the crowd. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Righto. Okay. And, then, and then the biggest thing was 16% attended a music performance connected to a sporting event, of which 46% did not actually go to the sporting event. They're more attracted to the entertainment. Yeah, the, yeah more attracted to the entertainment and you know th- that's drawing their attention more than the actual sporting event. So for me, this is a, a new horizon. So we've got uh, entertainment, music mostly, and sports fusing together. There's a reasonable percentage of people uh, that are attending both at the same time, or even some that are attending that musical event attached to a or entertainment event attached to a sporting event, but mm. don't really care too much for the sport. Yeah, think about like sort of your tailgating parties where they've got live music, or you know, down our local the Brumbies, you could just hang out in, in Batty Street there and listen to the man on his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually go into the Brumbies. Or there's a Cookie Monster uh, playing the saxophone outside the MCG on the walk back to the yeah. uh, Melbourne a lot of the time. But considering that, what does what does that mean for for, for the sponsorship space? Look on, on the the last entry to this series, the the, the um, we talked about the changing attention spans, yes. forcing rice holders to rethink. For me, this is Exhibit A of that rethink. You know, and the results are huge. Look at the statistics. So it it basically exposes. Um, it, it sort of helps monetize a, a huge amount of opportunity for rights holders. So, you know, think about the diversity and engagement opportunities that these different dif- different pieces of content help bring. The broader sets of rights that they can commercialize, the opportunities to generate more value for sponsors and audiences alike. So, the engagement on both sides of the fence. You know, this is it's the pinnacle of, of engagement, and then. The chance to grow and own an otherwise unreachable fan base, because as we saw there, you know, you're looking at a 46% of 16% 
not actually attending the event, they're people that you're not going to get the attention of just by by running a sporting event. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd be there yeah. anyway. So there's some some broad headlines, you know, the diversity of engagement, broader sets of rights, and some opportunities and chances to grow. They're the the headlines in terms of the opportunities that are presented. How can rights holders use those opportunities specifically? So the generation of this content, it, it gives rights holders the chance to broaden the rights they offer. So, you know, the true mix of content helps to engage a genuinely diverse audience, so like a genuine diversity in your audience, bringing newly engaged people in front of partners that otherwise you wouldn't be able to hold their attention. Um, and then the commercial opportunities that follow through on that are, you know, you could you can have different categories depending on the, the the sporting content or the entertainment piece you can have more engagement opportunities you can offer partners upsells to be part of those other bits and pieces you, you can mix and match your, your your sort of inventory however you like but the you know looking to use the pulling power of rights holders to access that audience is still something that's never going to leave what you've now got is this different piece of content that's added to your, to your bow. Yeah, and it was interesting, uh, maybe six, seven, eight episodes ago, we had uh, Dan Freistack from CDW on the podcast, and we touched on this because we were talking about how rights holders are starting to buy up the property around the precincts of their mm. um, sporting venues mm. so that they can expand their horizons with entertainment which will sometimes but other times not be actually attached to a sporting event on the same day and what sort of opportunities there were to uh, engage a rights holders brand with those people that are coming onto the precinct who might not normally be engaged so you might be able to leverage them up into being paid members or free tickets to a game to give them some 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 tastes and things like that yeah i mean it's not new in the u.s but i mean look at the new white heart lane the, the, the amount of free open space that they've incorporated into that new build is specifically for this reason. Yeah, and uh, Parramatta Stadium in the west of Sydney, when it's due to be open middle next year, maybe? I'd have to check that. Um, ability to roll in outdoor exhibitions like mm. boat shows and, and things like that um, yep. really open up the, the entertainment opportunities outside of just sporting events. So you spoke about what rights holders can do with those opportunities. Yep. What about brands? What about sponsors? Look, I'll start by saying that sports sponsorship is not for every brand. It might not be aligned to their core values or, or their objectives. But what can't be denied is the pulling power of the rights holder, is the engagement of the rights holder audience. And it is something that has to be appealing even to those that might not be interested in sports. So, you know, I'm, I'm a true believer that sponsorship in general is genuinely the best way to, to access audiences that traditional marketing and advertising can't cut through. So depending on the rights available, the demographic involved, the objectives of the brand, the entertainment content might be more suitable than the rights. So therefore the brands now that might not have an appetite for sponsoring sport suddenly have an appetite for sponsoring sport without having to touch the sport content. I remember when I was working you know, at the, at the Brumbies, we were talking to a sponsor once and really interested in our brand and our place in the community especially our proximity to government but they ended up falling through because they were scared that some an, a, a 
player would break his arm and the bone of his arm would stick <laughs> through their logo on the sleeve. L- l- seriously. Have like, you ever seen a player break their arm at that level? As in, no, what's, that, what's that bone, the humerus? Yeah, compound fracture. Yeah, yeah. No, and, but it, that's why they said no. They just didn't have the risk appetite for, yep. you know, it, it was probably more to that, right? That was just what they told us. Mm. But you can think, you know, if, if you've got, you're putting your brand reputation in the hands of young you know, men, it some, sometimes can be scary, especially yep. for people that don't understand the market they're going to. And this was a global brand based in Europe. So I then look at that example. You pull it back. If we were offering just as engaging content to just as bigger an audience in and around the football match, which was the attractive part for these guys, there's an opportunity. Hmm. So using the entertainment content to draw the attention to the brand through aligning the available benefits with the stated objectives provides a whole new layer of engagement, even if not coupled with sport. So we've spoken about some of those key stats around 25% of the US population have attended a musical event or connected to a sporting event. 16% have attended a musical performance connected to a sporting event, of which 46 didn't even attend the sporting event you spoke about what does that mean for us and and then how can rights holders use those opportunities and then how brands and sponsors can use those opportunities underline it for us give us a final word why is that all important pull it together well it, it magnifies the power of sporting rights holders and how that power is growing so rights holders aren't just sporting teams anymore we've got a, a client here in australia who bats way above their weight i sat down with with Terry Reader from the Brisbane Broncos, we'll give him a shout out because he's doing a great job up there, but they don't talk about themselves as a football team. They talk themselves about as a media company. You know, these guys are, are, are pr- producing content to engage their audience and predominantly through media opportunities. So the big ones are more akin to media companies with massive reach, huge engagement opportunities, very diverse through entertainment or through sport. They've got huge star power that they can draw upon as well to create more content within that content. So, if, you know, think about it, you've got a, you know, a, a, a concert with Katy Perry in the in the car park, and then Toto, <laughs> or Toto, and then all of your uh, all your injured players or former players and whatever floating around like that's just a special environment Mm. right and so you know the report mentions that sporting events are likely to become multi-way festivals culminating in the match or sporting content providing brands with nearly endless ways of finding engaging ways to to hit those audiences and cut through and what's really like fun and and for me you know the opportunities are only going to get better is the the opportunity for trial and error in this space. You know, you can try something. It's not not the end of the world if it doesn't pay off and comes back, particularly if there's multiple opportunities for a term. Yeah, and you're coming from a strong base, which is your sporting event, Correct. which has been successful for a long time. Now, Africa's your favourite song. I said we wouldn't get you to sing it. No, I'm I, pro- not. I, I, no. I shouldn't have denied the opportunity. I'll put it out there now. Would you like no. to sing it on the way out? No, Mara. Tell me what your favourite song is because I saw a Facebook post of yours the other day which said that when you're driving alone, singing a song at full freight, you felt like you could have the backing of a big band. I am a fantastic singer when there's no one around and yeah. the music is up very loud. There's no one around right now, and I'm, I'm sure you can turn the music I'm up. I'm enjoying a little bit of uh, Elton John Rocketman at the moment. I've yeah. been playing that a lot in the car, and we won't, uh, we won't sing that. So thanks for joining us. No worries. I know it gets said a lot that we're in a period of great change and fragmentation of audiences, and that those audiences have short attention spans. 
None of that's debatable. However, even though we know that, both rights holders and brands are still navigating that changing space and they also need to be constantly evolving and looking at new ways to deliver value on multiple fronts. Fusing sport and entertainment has shifted to become not just about halftime shows at grand finals, playoffs and Super Bowls, but something much deeper and more engaging. And joining me on the show to help us understand the trend and how we can navigate it is Rebecca Stevens, Vice President, Global Brand and Sponsorship Consulting at Nielsen Sports. Rebecca manages client relationships and consulting engagements for major brands and sports entertainment properties. She's very well placed to help us understand the trend, having worked with Fortune 500 brands across automotive, CPG, financial services and insurance, major sports teams in the NFL, NBA, MLB and NASCAR, as well as national governing bodies, multi-sport venues, major event host committees, state tourism boards and gaming and esports platforms. Here's Rebecca. Rebecca Stevens, welcome to the show. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to ease you into the, the interview and also to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Tell us about the first ever concert you went to. Well, um, so I know that's supposed to be easy, um, but I actually didn't go to that many concerts growing up, which is probably not something I should admit to, given my current line of work. Um, I think the first big arena concert that I went to was actually Bruce Springsteen. So may not have been that early, but it was a good one at least. Very good. And following on that same line of questioning, because we're here to talk about the fusion of sports and entertainment, tell us about the first sporting event you ever went to. Also a tricky one, but for a different reason. So I'm not sure I actually remember my first sporting event. Um, my dad has had season tickets to University of Michigan football since he was a student there, undergrad and law school. So I've been going to Ann Arbor for football games for as long as I can remember. Um, before we were even old enough to sit through the games, we would go down to the tailgate, hang out in Ann Arbor during the games, regroup with the family uh, that had gone to the games afterwards. So I don't honestly remember my first one, um, but the most memorable one, maybe I'll go with that, was probably the 1997 Michigan-Ohio State game. So for those that aren't familiar, I was there with my dad, my sister, and my brother, and Michigan capped off its undefeated season and went on to win the national championship. So if not first, an early memorable one. Outstanding. I like your dad very much because I'm a firm believer that it's uh, the, the father's or the parent's responsibility um, to indoctrinate their children into the same sports fanaticism and following. So I uh, commend your dad. He sounds as though he's done his job as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm of the view that the, the, the children should grow up just like you did, not knowing any different. It's not a choice. You're born into it. <laughs> that was exactly it. Rebecca, tell us about your journey, uh, your em employment journey so far, including your current role and a little bit what, about what it involves. Sure. So actually... And I'm not sure about your past guests, but I have a fairly traditional consulting background. So most of my career was not in the sports and entertainment space. Um, I started, came straight out of undergrad and joined Boston Consulting Group, was based in Chicago at the time, doing traditional strategy and management consulting across a variety of industries. You name it, uh, air fresheners to industrial tires. Um, I left there to do my MBA at Stanford, which is what actually brought me out to California. Geographically, I got stuck at that point. Um, 
and graduated and went to KKR Capstone, which for those that aren't familiar is the operations team at the private equity firm. So again, consulting skill set, but working with the portfolio companies of the private equity firm. And although neither of those roles really directly had anything to do with sports or entertainment, it was always a part of my life, professionally, personally, um, actually going back to undergrad, I did my honors thesis on the economic impact of the Olympic Games. Um, and then throughout the years in Chicago and in San Francisco, volunteered for a couple of so far, unfortunately, unsuccessful Olympic bids. And you know, even just while at business school within a variety of sports-related projects and did an internship. So in, it would have been late 20, I'm losing track of years here, late 2014, I was doing some work with the San Francisco 2024 Olympic bid and was connected with who is my now boss. Um, so he was working at a company called Recucom at the time, which was later acquired by Nielsen, starting their consulting group. Um, quick background for those that aren't familiar. So Recucom was really a preeminent sports and entertainment research company at the time. It's a lot of work in media valuations and sponsorship exposure and research around fans and had just made a strategic decision to try to build and grow a consulting practice. Um, and so for me, it seemed like a, a perfect fit, the opportunity to combine my consulting experience with an industry that I'd always been passionate about um, and also had the added benefit of being a startup and helping build a business. So long story short, um, three years later, I'm still here. As I mentioned, Repucom was acquired by Nielsen in 2016, last summer, and I now am co-leading the consulting group in North America across the sports and entertainment practice with a growing focus really on the broader entertainment industry. So in addition to sports, which was kind of the core business, a lot of time and focus being spent um, in music and esports in particular, working with both rights holders and brands that have large sports sponsorships and entertainment platforms. We're going to focus on trend number four in Nielsen's commercial trends in sport 2017, and it's a great segue what you're focusing on at the moment because that trend is the greater fusion of sports and entertainment. Now, the report includes some key interesting stats. Can you just run us through them and set the scene for us a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the, the name of the trend says it all. It really is how these two verticals and platforms are coming closer and closer together. Um, and I think what it's coming out of is being, you know, rights holders, regardless of the vertical, are being really pressured to drive growth and eyeballs and attention, you know, forced to be a little more creative in terms of building the reach and the stickiness of their properties. And so with this fusion, um, you know, they're ultimately able to attract new fan bases and retain existing fans. Um, you know, the, if you think about it, really, the halftime show is probably the first example of this happening. So, the, you know, the high school band at the Friday night football game is a fusion of sports and entertainment. But we've seen these integrations really amplified um, over the past few years. So you asked about stats. I think one of them that stood out to me from our national fan research was just how pervasive the integration already is. So 25% of the U.S. population uh, claimed to have attended a musical event that took place at or was connected to a sporting event. And for me, that's you know, interesting, but what's even more compelling 
is the realization that it's actually driving changes in behavior. Um, so of those who went to a musical event that took place at the sporting event, 13% said they would not have attended the event were it not for the musical performance. Um, and likewise, of those who went to a music event that was connected to a sporting event, 46% did not even attend the sporting event. Um, so again, the root of the trend is just finding ways to grow and retain those fan bases. And this is obviously expanding fan bases to new, to new audiences. Very good. I think that there's lots of little comments and angles in there that you just covered off that we're going to dive into a little bit deeper later on. One of those right now was you were talking about halftime entertainment. Sports and entertainment isn't just about halftime entertainment. There are bigger opportunities than that that you alluded to. How do sports rights holders fuse with entertainment well? What are the key things that they need to get right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great question. And, and you're absolutely correct. There's more than just the halftime show, although I wouldn't underestimate the value of a good halftime show. I think <laughs> hopefully I get this right. The Super Bowl, I think halftime show exceeded average TV viewership for at least the last four years, I believe. So um, I have kind of driving interest in that game as much as anything. But, uh, you know, to get back to your the real question, I think the, the best examples are when they're truly fused events, but you can't really tell if it's a sporting event or if it's entertainment. Um, you know, both are equal factors in kind of driving fan experience. A couple of examples, you know, come to mind. Um, USA Gymnastics puts on a post-Olympic tour that is with its athletes following the Olympic Games, and it's honestly, it's part sport, it's part Cirque du Soleil, it's a music production, lights, costumes. You know, it's really a fan engagement, you know, additional monetization opportunity for the property itself. It's a ticketed event and you know, creates a whole new platform for sponsorship. Um, so I think, again, that's almost the extreme example of where you just don't know if it's sports or if it's music. Um, one other one that comes to mind is the Miami Open, one of the premier tennis stops on the ATP and WTA Tour which is known, again, you know, it's a sporting event, but when you ask somebody in the area why did they go to the event, as many people are going for the entertainment aspects as for the tennis itself. It's, there's live music, there's a fashion component, there's celebrity chefs, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's when they enhance each other. They're not competing, they're really enhancing one another. I wanted to ask a question around the the gymnastics example that you gave just then because – where I live in, in Australia, the gymnastics isn't a high-profile sport. Australia doesn't generally do very well at the Olympics. So it only comes into our view once every sort of four years, maybe at the Commonwealth Games every two years, where we would do quite well. I'm curious about how the public embraces that event and attends. Is it something that needs to be pushed hard and sold, or is it something where the, the, the public, because of the entertainment experience and because of the profile of gymnastics in America – tickets just get sold and it's really well embraced. What's the situation? Yeah, look, I imagine ticket sales vary market to market, so I can't speak to every market, but I went to the show in San Jose this past year after 2016. It was unbelievable. I mean, just fervent fan base. And granted, the U.S. had an unbelievable show at the Olympic Games, so they probably had the best promotion that they could have asked for in terms of Timo Miles and the rest of the team's performance at the game. But from the audience there, you could tell you had core gymnastics fans. You had, you know, some 
particularly girls that, you know, were in their leotards and, you know, knew every move and knew every athlete. But you also had a lot of their families there and everyone was just as into the show because it, it was an entertainment experience. I mean, if you like Cirque du Soleil, you're watching the best athletes on earth, but perform. Um, so it very much extends, I think, the audience and the interest from, to your point, what's a fairly niche sport. And during the Olympic Games, yes, it's one of the most popular ones here, but it's still to understand the nuances of scoring and everything else. I think the entertainment side of it kind of broadens broadens its reach when they come back and do such a tour. It, it sounds really exciting. I'm curious about why other sports haven't executed the entertainment aspects even remotely. I look at a sport like football or soccer in some parts of the world, and particularly in Europe and, and the UK, they don't seem to focus on, what well, I was going to say much entertainment, but even entertainment at all. Why is that? And do you think it's ultimately going to change for those sports that have not made an effort or resisted it for so long? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I do think it the success of this comes down to, and I'll probably be repetitive at this, but it comes down to being authentic to the sport and its fan base. And so to your point, global football or soccer, as we refer to it, uh, probably incorrectly here in the U.S., <laughs> is so like deep in tradition that frankly, I don't think the on-field in-game experience is likely to change very quickly. You know, they have deep fan bases. They are selling out their stadiums. Um, but all of that being said, I actually, you know, not to disagree with you, but I actually think if you look at the sport more broadly, it is still connecting to entertainment in some ways. So, you know, FIFA, and we can debate if esports falls into sports or entertainment, but it's at least a different format of the game. You know, FIFA's heavily investing into the Interactive World Cup and trying to grow interest in their sport through esports and engagement in that way. Um, around the World Cup, there's always the release of the FIFA World Cup song, which, you know, is a significant PR driver leading up to the World Cup. And, you know, even in a week-to-week -week basis in the UK and in Europe, we are seeing entertainment aspects grow more in kind of the pre- and post-game experience. Again, once you're in that venue, it's you know, pure traditional football. But outside, Manchester City you know, has developed really a pre-match entertainment zone, which includes live music, player appearances, community activities. Um, so I think it's getting closer. I think you'll be, it'll be one of the lagging sports if it ever, and I'm not sure it ever will get to the same level as you know, gymnastics tour. They're just different sports, different audiences. Um, I think that maybe the last point on this one is the players themselves are also starting to bridge that gap a little bit, right? As we see players as not just athletes, but celebrities and building social media profiles and, you know, being brand ambassadors, particularly around kind of fashion brands and the like. Um, I think, I think the trend still applies. I just think it's manifesting itself in a different way. What about for smaller rights holders? Because we don't generally see a lot of attempts by them to fuse their offerings with entertainment. Are they missing an opportunity? And if so, do they execute it well if they can't actually sign big-name entertainment? Is there an opportunity for them to fuse their offerings with entertainment if they don't have the opportunity to sign that that big headline band that draws people because they already have that following? Uh, yeah, I mean, my... my 
gut reaction is yes, I think there is still an opportunity there. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example where it's happened, but I think the logic is the same as, you know, the small rights holders still exist, even though they're small. Um, I think what we'll likely see is similar scale engagements and activations. Um, so no, you're probably not going to see Lady Gaga doing the halftime show for the small rights holder, but that doesn't mean that music and arts and culture and food and fashion and everything else that comes with entertainment can't be infused in the event. Um, you know, I mean, we already spoke to the gymnastics example, which I think would qualify in the world of NGB. It's large in the world of NGBs, but it's still a relatively small rights holder. Um, another example that comes to mind is actually if we just spoke briefly to esports. This time, if we think about, you know, esports as a sport and certainly growing, but each kind of individual property is still fairly small. Um, we're seeing a growing association between esports and the electronic music industry with things like DJ appearances at pre and post parties associated with the live events. Um, and so I think, I think the opportunity is there. I think it's just about understanding who is your fan base, what is going to resonate with the fan base. Um, you know, the two examples above are kind of perfect conflicting examples in some ways, you know, the esports fan would not be introduced interested in a, self-produced dance and lights show and the gymnastics <laughs> fan is probably not the target uh, EDM demographic, but both of them were able to kind of find that niche entertainment audience to or niche experience to enhance the fan experience. Something you said earlier really piqued my interest and I'm curious about your advice around this for some of those smaller rights holders. It's probably going to be applicable to bigger rights holders as well, but those smaller rights holders that may be sitting in their office, they've got people around the board table, they're having their weekly meeting and they want to know how to grow their sport, get more people there, engage people. You're the consultant, you're the expert, but it would it would appear to me that comment that you made around the, the good ones are where you can't tell where one starts and one stops. Is that their starting point? How do we build an experience like that rather than trying to bolt things onto an existing offering? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great goal um, and certainly would be a good mindset to start with. You know, the question I would ask before I even get to that point is where are our fans also spending their time? Where, what else are they passionate about? What is their other passion point beyond our sport? And then once you've identified that, you already know you've got a fit from an audience perspective. Then to your point, how do we develop a logical experience or event or content, right? I think we're focused on live events here, but it's not limited to live events. How do we kind of create a platform or partnerships that have um, mutually beneficial opportunities for both parties? Mm, very insightful. I like that answer. Rebecca, mostly the fusion of sports and entertainment, as you alluded to a little bit earlier on, uh, is occurring or has traditionally occurred around those big ticket items like Super Bowls and, and Grand Finals. Should rights holders be looking to make it more of a common experience week in, week out, rather than those peak events? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think my gut answer on that one is probably in line with the answer I just gave to kind of the smaller rights holder question. I think there is an opportunity for week in and week out. It's just going to be scaled proportionate to the event. 
Um, you know, the NFL does have halftime entertainment week in and week out, but nothing's on the scale of the Super Bowl, to use your example. So the key to me is that it still should be authentic and enhance the fan experience. It, if for a rights holder to achieve this, they need to start with less is more. You know, that'd be my personal recommendation. So do it right and do it well. And over time, if it grows into a program and platform that makes sense week after week, then great, all the better. I think that's only going to enhance the authenticity of it. But don't start with that pressure of, I must have something at every event. Mm, I think that's great advice. You just took the words out of my mouth. I think taking the pressure off yourself and growing it over a period of time rather than trying to deliver that big, huge experience that's a big shift for your audience is great advice. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but when sports and entertainment fuse, it would appear from the outside that it's often the sports rights holder driving that working relationship, i.e., you know, this big of this big artist is coming to play at our event. Should the broader entertainment sector be trying to take the lead more and look for opportunities themselves rather than what appears simply as being booked by the rights holder to turn up and play a gig? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's probably a logistics element where the big venues and the larger events are hard. It's harder to move a football game into a concert than to move a concert into a football game. So what you view it as may continue to seem like you know, the entertainment is getting dropped into the sporting event, if we use that example. But I do think that the promoters in the music industry are realizing the benefit of these types of events. Um, we already spoke about how the music events associated with a sporting event is growing attendance at sporting events. Um, but the data also supports kind of the inverse of that, that these types of appearances are good for the artist. Um, sports fans are avid music fans. They're significantly more likely to listen to radio by, um, you know, download music or subscribe to the likes of Spotify and Apple music and pay to attend concerts. Um, I believe the stat is in total that sports fans on average spend 23% more on entertainment than the general population. So again, reaching sports fans is good for, you know, entertainment properties. Um, not to keep coming back to the Super Bowl, but for this one, it probably is the most tangible example. Nielsen SoundScan measures sales of music sales over time um, and shows that the halftime performers regularly experience significant spikes in album sales and paid downloads following their halftime performances, which makes sense. They're reaching huge, you know, 110 plus million people in a given exposure. So certainly the benefits go in both directions. Yeah, I think that, that that's a really interesting comment around particularly sports fans selling, uh, spending more on entertainment and also the, the, the spike in the downloads. That's something I hadn't considered. Staying, well, one of the advantages of sports and entertainment fusing more is that the sports can potentially attract and engage either fringe fans or even those who aren't fans at all of the sport. It's a big opportunity because Clearly, ticket sales and memberships are important revenue streams for a lot of sports rights holders, and growing your database makes it more attractive to partners quite often. So how do rights holders go about actually converting those fringe or non-fans and trying to leverage them into more engagement around the, the rights holder? That is an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> probably the, the holy grail, if you will, and 
you know, I won't claim to say that I know there's a one magic formula, but, you know, to pontificate at least for a little bit, I think it's, it's about meeting the consumer where they are and understanding what resonates for them. So we do a lot of fan research, as I mentioned, to understand fan profiles and, you know, motivators of fandom. And actually through a large piece of global research, identified seven distinct fan types. Um, I won't try to go through all of them here, but to give you an example, they include groups like game experts who are really all about the sports. They're the ones that are keeping score during a baseball game. They're the ones you want on your trivia team to answer the obscure fact about who won the game in 1986. <laughs> to, yeah, you all know who they are, right? We all have friends <laughs> with those people. And then there's the connection fans who believe sports are intertwined with their social life. And they're all about bringing people together. Um, and so one of the keys is actually, you mentioned databases and how do you kind of convert fans you know, the sooner a rights holder can capture this potential information through, you know, ticket sales or on-site capture mechanism um, and kind of identify fans, whether it's through surveying and the like, you can actually leverage this information to target messaging. So, you know, in the example I just gave above, a game expert is not going to be interested in the entertainment elements of an event. And they don't need to be convinced, per se, to join or to become a better fan. While, you know, the connection fan may have been the person that you actually originally enticed to your property because there was a concert, because they had some, you know, entertainment factor that was social. Uh, it had nothing to do with the sport. And so how do you message to them around the next entertainment or the promotions that highlight the social scene at the events and group tickets and the like? So by understanding, you know, first of all, which ones are even open to becoming fans, you can be very targeted and among everybody that you can reach, who were those that only came to your event, you know, for a particular reason, you can start to create programs that may entice them over time. And frankly, not everybody needs to be a game expert, right? From sponsorship perceptive, it's actually so there's a variety of fan types that are, you know, very receptive to sponsorship. So those connection fans are just as valuable to you as a property as the game experts are. Staying on that point, what's the variety of fans attending entertainment aspects of a sporting event? Are many of them actually not sports fans, don't have any interest in it at all, they're just there for the entertainment? And if so, considering they aren't sports fans, is there really, truly even much of an opportunity for that sports rights holder to engage and convert them? Or is it more that the rights holder should be focusing on attracting more people regardless of whether they want to engage and be a fan of that sport because they're really focused on adding value to the sponsors around the entirety of the event? Um, all of the above? That, <laughs> that was deep. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite consulting answer, it depends. <laughs> I think, you know, the... A couple of the data points that I referenced earlier, I think, do support the fact that the people coming to these events, to answer the first part, no, they're not all sports fans from the beginning, right? We know that there's a number that are only coming because of the music or the other entertainment factor. Um, I do think there's the potential to grow fan bases by exposing fans or potential fans to a sport or property that they may not have previously been exposed to or had preconceived notions about what the experience or fan base would be like. Um, so getting them in the doors, engaging them in some positive manner is the first step. You know, I, I'm 
I'll admit my own and I probably shouldn't, but you know, I had preconceived notions about uh, motorsports and, and NASCAR. Talk about a property that does a great job of kind of on-site engagement of the fan and the like that, you know, the experience that I had when I first went on site was very different than what I'd envisioned as someone who'd seen, you know, highlights on TV previously. And so I think not, frankly, not everyone's going to become a season ticket holder, right? And that doesn't necessarily need to be your goal, but I think the potential is there um, for higher engagement. The other thing I would consider is maybe to the second half of your question, in some cases, properties actually are at capacity. They actually don't need more ticket buying fans. So part of what they're looking for in order to grow revenue are looking for, you know, what are those new revenue streams, including how do we create new assets from a sponsorship perspective or new ticketed events that we can generate revenue from. And, you know, the entertainment integrations have been highly successful in creating new sponsorable assets for current or new partners. So, um, I think, again, I think I'd go back to kind of the all of the all of the above answer. Um, you know, the last piece to think about is engagement on social media and using that as a platform um, to engage and to grow fan bases. You know, again, they may engage with your property, not because they're a fan of your team, but because that particular artist or celebrity or entertainer does something through your platform. So, again, they're building an affinity, even if it's not in the traditional sense of a fan for your sports team or the competition. Focusing on the brands and the sponsors, is there any evidence of an uplift in, you know, significant uplift in brand exposure, loyalty, or even return on investment for those sponsoring brands who are engaged in those entertainment aspects of the sporting events outside of what they might normally do with a rights holder compared to their engagement and loyalty exposure and return on investment prior to the event, maybe similar to what you mentioned around entertainers uh, seeing a spike in downloads and album sales? Yes, I should, I should have said my it depends answer for, for this question. But the short answer <laughs> you only get is, to play uh, that card it, once, Rebecca. I only get that one once, sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, look, I'm probably biased because I'm in the industry, but uh, full transparency, we've, we tell almost as many brands, well, I shouldn't say almost as many, but we tell plenty of brands to get out of sponsorships as we do to get in, right? We kind of try to play the independent objective third party. We are there to advise on what's best in terms of delivering their business objectives when we're working with brands and the metrics that we look at vary. And the reason I give you an, it depends answer is what ROI means in the sponsorship industry varies by the brand it varies by what are their objectives. It varies by what industry they're in it varies by kind of how they're going to measure return. Um, but the types of things that we look at are brand exposure um, and certainly, if there's any type of on-site or media exposure, then the entertainment um, properties are adding to that, both in terms of absolute number and also to the previous point in terms of reach, because you may be reaching a broader or a different, slightly different audience. The second thing that we often look at are putting things like sponsorship trackers into market and understanding what is awareness of the brand, what is awareness of the brand sponsorship, and how does those who are aware of the sponsorship out of their metrics on brand perception, consideration, purchase intent, recommendation, go right down the traditional marketing purchase funnel. You know, what are the deltas that we see there? And certainly from brands where there is an authentic engagement, um, where consumers perceive the brand fit, where there's 
you know, positive attributes associated with the property that they're partnering with, you can see very significant uplifts on a lot of these key brand metrics. Um, so that's true of, you know, the sponsorship industry in general. And I think entertainment is just one more manifestation of it um, and another way for brands to kind of activate their brand and spread their message. Rebecca, I was going to ask about whether you had any favourite examples of sports and entertainment fusing and, and why they were good, but I think you've given some, some some fantastic examples and insights already, so you, you feel free if you want to uh, add any more. But I, I also wanted to focus on, are there any examples that you can think of, uh, without being too critical, obviously, where fusing sports and entertainment has been attempted, but it just didn't work? It's a good question. I nothing specific is coming to mind, and you know, to your point, if I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but in general, and everyone can probably think of their own example, I'd say it's the times where it just doesn't feel like it fits, and where it feels disjointed, like it was an afterthought. I think you used the words earlier today about you know, it's just it's an add-on um, rather than an enhancement or even worse, where almost feels like it may be competing for fan attention. Um, if you think about things happening at the same time it, that aren't necessarily something that would attract the same fan group, or you know, you have to make decisions. Um, I'm not sure this is my most articulate answer here, but yeah, I think those are. If it feels disjointed, if it doesn't feel like an enhancement to the fans, and you know, if at any point it feels like it's competing, I think those are the ones where it's not necessarily effective. It's neutral to potentially negative. I, I think that, that that answer makes complete sense, and and it, it it harks back to a couple of things that we spoke about before about you know whether it enhances the experience and whether you can't tell where one starts and and one stops, and and then you speaking there about it not feeling like an afterthought or an add-on. I think that makes uh, complete sense. While the trend that we've spoken about mostly focuses on sport do you think there's much of an opportunity for non-sports rights holders to fuse with entertainment in the same way absolutely um i i actually even think and we, we use it in our own business we're using it today actually the line between frankly sports and entertainment in some ways is itself a bit of a misnomer um as sports frankly is one type of entertainment there's more commonly referred to as entertainment, music, arts and culture, esports, games, movies, television. Um, we could all go on. But so I think the idea of creating compelling fan experiences across entertainment platforms is what's behind this trend. And certainly it's been exemplified by focusing on sports because that is so clearly defined what it means. But it, there's no reason that these other different types of entertainment that I just spoke about can't make the same kind of investments in enhanced fan experiences, integrating passion points um, into, you know, singular and uh, larger scale events. Let's shift gears to the future. The report lists some dot points around potential future outlook, and one of those is a greater thirst from fans and brands for reality programming around big events. Can you explain what reality program means? Or reality programming, sorry. Yeah, I'm not sure. We may have made that term up. I'm not sure, but I think it's about the peripheral content, at least in my mind. 
Um, I think it's about the peripheral content that fans find compelling. So fans are constantly trying to get closer to celebrities. And that could be the athletes, that could be musicians, actors and actresses. Um, You know, frankly, social media does provide this glimpse into their lives that previously was really inaccessible. And one thing we found is behind the scenes content on social media is one of the most engaging content themes that we see coming from both the space sports and entertainment space. And so when we refer to kind of this growth for reality programming, I think what we're talking about are really creating both short and long form content with this type of exclusive access to these celebrities. Um, And it becomes an asset that rights holders can use to both continue to engage and grow their fan base as well as, you know, monetize from a sponsorship perspective. Let's stay on the future outlook. Let's fast forward, say, 15 years. What does this space look like? Will the the big name band, will the Foo Fighters be playing every time there's a stoppage in play? Um, Well, if I could predict the next 15 years uh, at the rate the industry is changing, I'd be very successful. But I'll take a stab at it and don't hold me accountable. Um, I think from the perspective of this trend, I... I do think it's going to continue. I don't think it's just about adding more and more, you know, interludes and uh, to your example, kind of music at each stoppage in play. I think people will get tired of that. You'll get pushed back. People love the Foo Fighters though, Rebecca. People love the Foo Fighters. (laughs) Maybe that's the one exception. That's the one exception. Um, You know, I think the, I think the trajectory is more along the lines of those integrated events that we've spoken about. I think it's, it's going to be blurring of lines at individual events. I think also if you think about rights holders more as kind of portfolio owners, I think we're going to see them having kind of a diverse suite of opportunities for fans and brands. And that will include sports. That will include entertainment. Um, it's just going to be kind of more of a holistic ecosystem if I had to guess, but 15 years is a very long time. <laughs> we'll have you back on the show in 15 years to see how it's all panned out. <laughs> Perfect. Rebecca, if people want to get in touch with you, connect on social, et cetera, what can they do? Uh, sure. I'm, so they can reach out on LinkedIn, it's, uh, Rebecca Stevens, and or email um, R E Rebecca is R E B E K A H uh, dot Stevens S T E V E N S at Nielsen dot com. Um, or I'm sure if they get in contact with you, you'll find a way to pass it along. But I'm I'm happy to get in touch, and it's a topic that's fun to talk about. So more than happy to help out where I can. Outstanding. Rebecca Stevens, Vice President, Global Brand and Sponsorship Consulting at Nielsen Sports. Thank you so much for taking us inside the greater fusion of sports and entertainment. Thanks for having me. Great chat with Rebecca. I know she's been really, really busy with work and travel over the last couple of weeks, so I know we are all very appreciative of her finding some time to share her thoughts and insights on the greater fusion of sports and entertainment. That's about all we have time for in episode 46 of Inside Sponsorship. Don't forget to head to Sponserve.net to read Mark's blog in detail or download Nielsen's Commercial Trends in Sport 2017 paper. Of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or the podcast direct to your inbox each week, then just shoot me an email or sign up at Sponserve.net. And if you'd like a shout out on the show, just like Mark and Patrick, then get in touch and I will make that happen for you. 
If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email at mark at sponserve.net. Don't forget that you can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.